Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Second Chronicles 32. Uh, Hezekiah has taken the rule of the kingdom. He's cleaned up the temporal area. He's had a big grand reopening feast. Uh, he invited not just Ju Judah to come, but the northern kingdom too. Uh, and he has reformed the teaching ministry. He's reformed the administration. He's reset up regular orderly worship of God and put all the cycles of the musicians back into place that David had first put into place. Ending in chapter 31, at the very ending, it says, so he prospered. And that creates kind of a chapter one to his reign and a chapter two. So the steadfast maintenance of worship is the primary thing that Chronicles highlights. When we read Kings, it's a very different narrative. So this chapter with Sennacherib, there's a lot of things that match with Kings. And I'll point out some of the difference. But the, one of the largest differences is we don't really hear from Assyria in Chronicles. And again, from a heavenly perspective, the garbage that pours out of the messenger's mouth, which is accurately recorded in Kings, just gets ignored in Chronicles because it's just not important. Um, and so the same is true with the ending of chapter 31. It says, so he prospered, but we don't get a ton of details around that. Other than in chapter 3, we get a very brief overview of what it means that he prospered. But again, his prospering here on earth is not the heavenly perspective. The fact that he did what was right in the Lord's eyes is the important part, which we just got two chapters on. So then we get to chapter 32. Assyria is going to show up. He has prospered, and there is this looming threat that has already eradicated the known world all around, everywhere, and Assyria um, essentially defeats all Judean cities except for Jerusalem at this phase. But that's not really highlighted in Second Chronicles. Here's what Second Chronicles says. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs and the brook that ran through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Uh, and so we get the a paragraph about, you know, it's not necessarily prosperous living, but it's his reaction to an attack on his kingdom. And the attack is we're going to protect the living water. And we're going to make sure that, that this city has what it needs to be living for the Lord. And in verses chapters 30 and 31, it's all been about the worship of the Lord. It hasn't been anything military or civic, but that part of the life has now come to, to surround Jerusalem literally. Um, and their first thought is let's make sure that we have a water source. Now this is where we get Hezekiah's tunnel. When it says stop the water, there are springs, there's two springs that feed Jerusalem and they go right out the door. And the idea is why would we have a water source for these people to drink from? Let them get to Jerusalem and not have water. If they're going to attack God's people, they don't need that. So Hezekiah's tunnel is still there. It's an engineering wonder. Honestly, it's, it's absolutely incredible. If you want to go back to 2 Kings chapter 18, I dig into the wonders of Hezekiah's tunnel, which I think is the place to do that in the book of Kings. Here it's just pointed out that this is a reaction to an attack. Um, the Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, it tells that whole story. The word Sennacherib means sin multiplied. And so um, Hezekiah has tried peaceful negotiations. There has been no avail to those. And we're focusing here on the spiritual dynamic between Assyria and Judah. Spiritually, when under attack, God's people aren't really obligated to help their attackers. Sometimes it's okay to just bolster the defenses and, and provide for those that are in the city. And, and he strengthened himself, verse 5. He built up a, at all the wall that was broken, raised up the towers, built another wall outside, and he repaired the millow in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. They think they've found the millow and they're digging it up now. Uh, if we do go to Jerusalem, we should be able to see some of these 
fortresses that Hezekiah's dug up. Archaeologically, they have actually dug down to Hezekiah's era. They've found coins from Hezekiah. Um, so a lot of these things are things you can go see when you go to Jerusalem today. When we know a siege or attack is coming, building up our defenses is a pretty sound strategy. If you know you're going to be under attack in a certain area of your life, preparing for that and getting ready for it's not a bad idea. And over the years, Steph and I have counseled quite a few people that struggle with sin. And there's areas where sin happens in life and they know it's going to happen. And one of the greatest defenses you can have is to build up the walls. Make it so that situation that sponsors or fuels sin isn't around anymore. And so this idea or this image of spiritually reinforcing the boundaries, bolstering the word, readying our prayers, these are good strategies when you know the enemy's coming. And you know what direction they're coming from. So he builds another wall outside. Assyrians had mastered not only torture methods, which we talked about in 2 Kings, they also mastered a, a weapon called the battering ram. And the Assyrian battering ram became a, a tool that they used to go through all of these cities that had, you know, 10, 15 foot thick walls. And these battering rams would just pound at these walls. And this is why Assyria was able to take after city after city after city. They had better technology. So this building a second wall around is an interesting idea too. If you know that's a tool that your enemy has, build the defenses appropriate to the tool. Every weapon that's been made militarily has had a defensive weapon made against it. Even unto today, we have missiles and you see the Jews using a thing they call the iron shield, which targets and finds missiles and hits them in the air before they can land on the ground. So he, Hezekiah is aware of his enemy's tools and tactics and he builds according, accordingly. And Nehemiah here is leading the same rebuilding of the walls when this book is getting written. So it's interesting that they include these details because the rebuilding of the walls is what causes um, stress and political attacks against Ezra and Nehemiah as they're rebuilding Jerusalem. So to point out the fact that this is something that's necessary for Jerusalem because at some point Assyria might be coming for you. So in the face of Persia maybe getting antagonized to come after the Jews, they're building up these walls of the city to try to defend themselves. And with every belief that they're going to be protected against a mighty Persia in the same way that Hezekiah was protected against Assyria. So this becomes an important story for the people that are reading it in the generation that it's getting written. Then he set up then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to be to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that's with them, for there are more with us than there is than than with him. And with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. This tells us something about Hezekiah. He's a good orator. Like, if that's the gist of what he said, and the people were encouraged by that, like, it must have came off with a certain certainty or confidence. Um, Hezekiah shows spiritual leadership to the people. He doesn't, yes, there's military captains. Yes, they've made swords and shields and in abundance, ready to go. But the real leadership that Hezekiah shows is not battle training. It's training in a spiritual sense that if we follow the Lord God and we've done everything right, he will defend us. And he's holding God to a promise when he says that. And this becomes a spiritual, a tactic for battle with spiritual enemies too. He's done everything he can do to prepare on earth. He's been smart. He's taken away those stumbling blocks that maybe help people fall into sin. He's gotten rid of the idols, gotten rid of the temple. He's, they've devoted themselves to worship the way God has prescribed it. He's done everything on earth the way he can do it to prepare for spiritual battle. But at the end of the day, the real defense is God. So instead of giving a speech about how weak the Assyrians are and how strong they are, kind of a rah-rah Braveheart speech, he does quite the opposite. He tells them the Lord God's going to fight our battle. There's no argument that, that Jerusalem is unable to defend itself against Assyria. So he doesn't even make that argument. That at the end of the day, if all you have are the weapons of the flesh, you're going to lose to the flesh. 
But Hezekiah points out they have another weapon. They can keep the enemy out, but they have to be ready to endure, and God is going to have to defeat them. Hezekiah does not have a, a hostile defense plan here. The arm of flesh, all sin multiplied, has everything this world has to offer when it comes to fear and force to come and attack and defeat a city. And to prove it, he's defeated hundreds of cities before Jerusalem. This is on a tour that he's making throughout the known world. That's it. Elisha is advising um, Hezekiah at this point, and I think Hezekiah is conveying a promise that probably was taught to him by Elisha, which is God is with you, and God's made promises to be with you. So when we read in other places that the God is with them and that they have another arm, which is an arm of spirit. Sennacherib comes with an arm of flesh. Israel, or Judah, has the arm of the spirit. And then he says, be strong and courageous. The words of Joshua which again indicate that Hezekiah knows his Bible. He's been in the Word. He knows what God has said to people that are following the king. To say be strong and courageous implies that they were perhaps weak and fearful, and they needed to hear be strong and courageous. I think sometimes we read the, the comment and we forget that there's a reason why Hezekiah says this. It's because that's exactly where the enemy is attacking. He's making God's people weak, and he's making them fearful of what the Assyrians will think of them or do to them. So to buck up, it seems like an Old Testament command um, that points to a reminder here too, and that is, with us is the Lord our God. Literally in the Hebrew, it starts with M, or the beginning of the word Emmanuel, God with us. That's the promise. Be strong and courageous because with us is the Lord our God, which is Manuel M, right? So God with us is the promise. That's the thing that makes us strong. The people were strengthened by the words, as we can be too. When we're in a battle that seems daunting or overwhelming, knowing that God is with us is actually the thing that gives us strength. We don't fight alone. And I think the enemy loves to make people feel like they're all alone in their situations. But at the end of the day, you're not. For starters, you got your church family. But much more importantly, you, the Lord God is with you every second in that trial. He knows everything you're going through. He knows what's happening in your heart and in your mind, that dread, that terror, that feeling of being overwhelmed. God sees and experiences all of that with you, alongside you. You're not alone. And just to know that you have the Lord God with you enables you to be strong and courageous. It's a reason for being strong and courageous. The full picture is our role in all of this is not to fight the Assyrians. The role is to have strength and courage because God is with us. And that's the spiritual battle. That's the way we fight battles. Verse 9, after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem, but he and all the forces with him had laid siege against Lachish. That's a really important detail um, where today's archaeology, um, it's great that that little paraphrase is in verse 9 because today's archaeology shows the Assyrian attack and assault was successful all the way to the city of Lachish. This was a large, well-fortified city. Um, it's only 30 miles away from Jerusalem, and there's a great fresco. I talked about this when we did Second Kings 2 in the Assyrian throne room to brag about how many Judean cities they conquered, and the fresco is of the assault and the victory over Lachish. And Nothing in the Assyrian record after that. Like their history books just stop magically after that. And we'll see the reason for that very quickly. To the laid siege against Lachish, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, to all Judah who were in Jerusalem. So he's coming. And we'll move fairly quick through this because, again, I feel like we just did it in 2 Kings 19 where I went into a lot more detail on this. And I kind of want to get through two chapters tonight. So if you want more detail on the battle and how they softened up their victims by sending the mouth of Sauron in, you can go back to that teaching and hear it or even remember it. In short, the Assyrian strategy was if we're going to do physical battle at Lachish, we're going to send these demoralizing agents ahead of us to the next city. So they were prepping the next city for battle by trying to soften them psychologically before they even moved the army over there. The hope, uh, the hope in doing that is if you can get the city to surrender without a fight, then you don't have to provide supplies for all your soldiers. They can just raid the city. And so doing this is one way to do that. Here's what they said, verse 10. Saying, thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, in what do you trust that you remain under the siege in Jerusalem? 
How does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? So, again, we get some examples of how the enemy actually makes a spiritual attack. Fear is one of them. Strength is another, but we get these demoralizing words coming out of Snackrub. And again, this is an edited version from what we got in Kings. Um, the enemy questions God. And, you know, that question of, does God really say to do this? Is that really what God said to you? Maybe you had a vision. Maybe you heard from God. Maybe you had an emotional experience. Maybe you felt the spirit when you first gave your life to the Lord. But did he really want all of that from you? Is that a mission that he really sent you on? And that question of, did God really say that, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is the original tactic of the enemy. Are you sure God said that? Moses got this too, Deuteronomy one twenty seven, And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord God hated us, he has brought us out of forth from the land of Egypt to deliver us to the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Did God really tell you to leave Egypt just to get destroyed out in the wilderness? So whatever trial we go through as believers, I think this is one of the primary tactics of the enemy is uh, you're going through all these hard things. You're in a job that you don't like. You're, you have a relationship that's having problems. Did God really put you in that place in the first place? And it, it undermines the work that God has given us and putting us in the way of. There's a twist here, which is typical of the enemy. Uh, they say, did, did Hezekiah say this to you? And, and though Hezekiah is conveying it, it's not actually Hezekiah that said these things. It's actually God that said these things. Hezekiah is simply a good steward of what God said. And the enemy tries to reduce that a little bit. He did it with Eve in the garden and Adam, and he's doing it now with the people of Jerusalem. Isaiah 31.5. This is what uh, Isaiah was sharing. Uh, and as birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also he will deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. That's what Hezekiah is hearing from the prophets. He's hearing that message. So is it Hezekiah saying this, or is it God saying it to the prophets and Hezekiah saying it to the people? And so that little twist of who's actually saying this, is that a human voice telling you to go do that thing for the Lord? Or is that actually God's voice saying it? And that doubt and that non-certainty is great to use with believers that aren't firmly rooted. If you don't know what God sounds like, it's very easy to come into that question of, did God really say that? Is God really teaching that? Yet in his word, he said he will defend Jerusalem and he will deliver Jerusalem. And by the way, he didn't say that about the Twin Cities. Uh, you know, Jerusalem's going to be fine. He doesn't know so much about us. So even more so, you think of this idea of it's pretty clear what God intends for Jerusalem. He intends for Jerusalem to be a place where the Messiah will show up and walk into the temple and take his throne. Hezekiah did not persuade them. He modeled and he led, if you remember from last week. He did it for himself first, and people followed his lead. That's not just twisting people's arms. Uh, Hezekiah has taken away is the language of the enemy. We know the people went out and took away the idols on their own after seeing true, true worship in the temple. Remember that from last week? So in almost every line of this, the word's getting twisted. What actually happened is getting twisted. So they're being challenged on their own memories. And it's like, do, am I remembering that the right way? Was this all just a, a ruse by Hezekiah to convince me? And then he uses this other argument, also common to the enemy. Um, you have only one altar you can worship at. How limiting that must be. This idea of when you've seen idols and you've seen true worship, the people chose to worship. It wasn't that Hezekiah forced them to only be at one altar. It's that they saw that the way God had orchestrated it was actually better than having many altars to worship. So... If you go back to last week and look at that chapter, almost every one of Hezekiah's reforms, the enemy questions every single one of them. And there's just a, 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 a match or an alignment between those. This idea of one true worship being where you should do it, the enemy frames it as limiting and oppressive, but the real oppression is actually the Assyrian standing outside their door. The siege of the enemy is the real limitation. But the enemies use saying, uh, honestly, this is a form of what we say gaslighting is a popular word today. They're the ones oppressing the entire city, yet they're accusing Hezekiah of oppressing them by making it so they all go to one altar. 
it's, it's an odd thing. You shall worship before one altar. Um, by the way, that's also lying. Hezekiah never actually said that in the last chapter. We don't have a record of Hezekiah actually saying those words. No regard for God. It's Hezekiah doing everything. He's the one putting your life at risk. If the enemy can get the people to fight Hezekiah and get God's people to be at each other's throats, the enemy wins. If only we can create some division amongst God's people. So you see all the tactics of the enemy laid out. Now you know what they are. You know what direction they're coming from. Now you can build defenses against those things. And so what we see that is that this Assyrian tyranny that's coming in, one of the chief things is why would you fight it? And so this idea of why would you even challenge Assyria, they simply have your best interest in mind. But they don't. They have your looting and pillaging in mind is what they're doing. So the question of look at you, what you lose when you follow God becomes that last tactic that they put out there. We love God, so we stand for God, and when the attacks come, we stand on God's promises. That's not limiting. That's actually freeing us to do other things. Verse 13, do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the people of the other lands? Now the threats come. This is a little more aggressive. Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver this people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? So again, we get a summarized version of what the enemy says here. Um, but, but we get basically all these different spiritual attacks. The enemy compares Yahweh to other religions. That's the lie. Well, all these other religions couldn't save their people. Why do you think yours can? And the answer to that is because we're not those other religions. We actually serve a living God. And all those other gods were fake gods. So of course they failed. So, But it points out how religion is weak. And then it equivocates Yahweh worship with religion. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you. Again, trying to divide the people against their king. Don't let him deceive you or persuade you like this. And do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your god deliver you from my hand? Like, at that point, they should have given him a round of applause, because when he threw that thing out into the mix, the battle's over. At that point, he's invited God to come to battle. The logic is consistent. There's nothing wrong with Sennacherib's logic. From a carnal, worldly sense, this is rational thinking. Why would you get destroyed where we're going to kill all of you when you can just let us raid and loot your city and only kill some of you? Now, that logic makes a lot of sense. Why would you... But frankly, it's, it's, the fault in the logic isn't reason. The fault in the logic is the demonic pre premise of the logic. The premise is God is not God and he's not a real God. And that's where the logic falls short. If you assume God's not God from the beginning, you can come to very logical conclusions on the other end. But those conclusions are wrong. It's like if you try to shoot something, like shoot a rocket at the moon, and you're off by even a percentage of a degree, you're flying off into outer space. You won't catch exactly the spot you need to catch. Good reasoning has to start from a good premise. Will God deliver you? The answer, of course, is, yeah, if he's real, he will. Um, verse 16, furthermore, his servants spoke against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel. And some of those letters are in, in other texts. And to speak against him, saying, as the God of gods of the nations and the other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and trouble them, that they might take the city. Here's the thing. Before they even showed up, Hezekiah encouraged them with be strong and courageous. So these attempts to frighten and trouble them, they've already bolstered their defense against that attack. It's like building the second wall against a battering ram. And Hezekiah knew these spiritual attacks were coming, and he helped his people get ready for them. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem, as against the gods of the people on the earth, the work of men's hands. That gets highlighted here. The Bible even besmirches idol worship of woods and stone. Jesus even, or, or the, it, through the prophets, we see God even questions, why would you worship things that you've made? Now you're worshiping the works of your hands. And the works of human hands, let's be honest, can be pretty impressive. Humans have built skyscrapers, but we shouldn't worship them. 
Entire economies have been created by the work of men's hands. Legal codes, that if you look at the U.S. legal code, it takes a room of books. Like, it's a massive endeavor to create a legal code for a country of our size. The work of men's hands. But we don't put our trust in legal codes. We don't put our faith in legal codes. You know, the work of men's hands can be fashions, artificial intelligences. Smartphones are pretty impressive. Kansas City barbecue. There's a lot of great things that people have done with their hands, and they're very amazing, but they're not worthy of our praise. And they shouldn't capture our hearts in that kind of way. They all fall short. And here's the point of Hezekiah. God is not the work of men's hands. Assyria, you're very impressive, but you're not God. You fall short of that. And God is not the invention of any man. He's not comparable to what men have made. So the truth is, the God of heaven and earth, the God of the Israelites, is not just the God of Hezekiah. That's the truth. He's the God of Jerusalem. And you see those two phrases getting used interchangeably. He's the God of Israel, verse 17. It's not just any God. In Kings, the rest of this speech is all laid out. From the heavenly perspective, it's really not worth printing. Right? The point of what the speech was about is what we get in Chronicles. The point was to frighten, trouble, cause anxiousness, cause fear. Why would they do that? And then it gives us the reason that they might take the city. That's the point. They're saying all these things. The, the evil goal of the Assyrians was to take the territory of God's people, destroying the things that were considered holy and consecrated. But the God of Hezekiah will not deliver. That's the core of the attack. Also demarking in Chronicles, they believed the center of this battle was a spiritual dialogue between these two parties. Now because of this King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, they prayed and cried out to heaven. This was their defense. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and the captain in the camp of the king of Assyria so he returned shamefaced to his own land, and when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with a sword there. He gets killed in his own temple, right? It's amazing how edited and how abbreviated this all is. He threatened God and said God won't deliver. Hezekiah, Isaiah, they get together and pray, and they cry out to heaven, and 185,000 people are killed in one night. Dead. 2 Kings 19 has the entire prayer that they prayed. Here we just see that they prayed, but we don't get the prayer. Again, the words, the, the, that whole thing, all of that detail, what the chronicler wants us to know is they built the walls, they did everything they could do in their own strength, then they put it in God's hands and made it a spiritual battle. That's the point of the story. So they prayed and they cried out. They're assuming you've read Chronicles, you know all this. If they mock God, we start to pray. Yet in the church, I'm going to go after my argumentative church people. I think in the church, if you look at online, TikTok, YouTube, if you read the threads around anything spiritual, someone mocks God and the temptation for believers is to get into an argument with them. Instead of just saying, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm not going to get into that thing with you. Uh, they don't mince words with Sennacherib. They simply start to pray. Lord, repent change their hearts, turn them towards you, or take care of it and protect your city. So they pray and they cry out to heaven. That is the act of spiritual war that the chronicler highlights. The enemy will threaten, twist, lie, reframe, compare poorly, and undermine God's word and promises. What do we do in, in response? Much simpler, we pray. That's our spiritual battle. The enemy has to come up with all sorts of strategies and tactics, and we only need to turn to our God. And again, this is one of the things in the, in the church that sometimes we forget to do. Praying is our weapon. It is our tool. I love that every week some of us stick around and pray. And what a blessing to have kind of the prayer warriors just say, you know what, we're going to commit to this every week. You could argue when it comes to the spiritual battle of our lives that that prayer time is one of the most important things we do as a, as a group of people. Like studying the word is great. Praying is we're going to do battle today in the situations we find ourselves in. And we're going to pray for those things consistently with the hope and the faith that those are the things that God's going to take care of for us. New jobs, relationships, um, spiritual attack, depression. God can take care of those things, but you have to at least ask him to do it. The word cried there in the Hebrew, verse 20, they cried out to heaven. 
Um, that's not to like cry with tears like a kid. It, the word in the Hebrew means to appeal or ask for help. So if you say to pray, to talk to God, to have a conversation, and to cry out, it means that prayer isn't always asking for help or appealing for things. Sometimes prayer is just saying thank you. Um, sometimes prayer is to worship God and to speak his name. Um, the crying out for help here, we get a biblical example of God actually welcomes that and responds to that, which is why we in the church actually ask God for things. If we need help, if we're in a situation and we want some resolution to it, uh, I'm stunned with the, the degree to which when you pray with other people about it, you make it known that it's suddenly God intervenes and starts acting in those situations. It's a wonderful thing in the church. Um, so if you look in the histories, uh, Assyria um, brags about Lachish, and then their histories just stop because there's nobody to write them. If you go to Egypt or Greece, they explain this night of 185,000 dead people as rats invading the camp. And rats gave a disease that had to mature over three days, and then they all died at the same time. And the reason no arrows got shot, according to Egypt and Greek histories, is because the rats ate the leather on the bows and arrows, and they ate the strings, and the, an entire army's worth of uh, strained arrows were eaten by the rats in one night, which is why they didn't even fire a shot. So either way, some say disease, um, and then we get the Israel, the Jewish record, the victors, the one who actually had living people on the field after this was over, they give their history and they say an angel of God came and wiped everybody out in one night. The other hi histories don't present evidence to contradict that, but they do come up with some interesting theories or they just stay silent on the topic. The reality is the mightiest empire the world had ever seen ended in one night. This could be arguably one of the key turning points in all of world history. If they conquered Jerusalem, we wouldn't have Judaism. If we didn't have Judaism, we wouldn't have the seed of Christ. We wouldn't have Christianity. Imagine the world today being predominantly ruled by Assyrian religion. And, and honestly, what happens here gets summarized in like two, three sentences, but it's the most one of the most significant moments in human history that God intervenes here and stops an entire world power, 185,000 people, that's a lot of dead bodies to clean up. I think I pointed that out more graphically when we did Second Kings. But think about the cleanup work on this thing. Um, many of them got dumped into a valley of Hinnom where they were doing Moloch worship, and they put the Moloch worshipers in the valley of Moloch, and they cremated them. And it started fires that are became a garbage heap of unclean stuff in the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenim, which becomes Gehenna in the Greek. And this is, even to Jesus' day, that was still a, a cursed trash dump hundreds of years later. So verse 22, Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. So when they beat the chief enemy, everybody else pays attention. Because now God's people aren't, something's going on. The power of God's been manifested. So, and many brought gifts to the Lord. So they didn't actually have to fight battles with the other enemies. The other enemies just thought, we better get on their good side. Because they just wiped out the Assyrians and none of us could stop them. I mean, Snecrib just bragged about how they'd gone through every other nation and defeated their gods. So those other nations that are still out there, um, they start bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem. We better get on God's good side and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. Um, the key context phrase here is this is how God operates. So when you see gifts at this period of time, you've got Babylon, Babylon starting to rise. This is a, The Greeks were around. So when we see these gifts coming into Jerusalem, we can see heaven's view on this. And this is all we need to know. Here's a giant threat. Prayer happens. God saves and God gets glory. And that's the battle sequence for God's people or how it should go in an ideal situation. So Hezekiah being a fairly righteous king knows how to fight battles. And this is part of his legacy and his kingship. Um, there's the phrase guided them on every side, uh, the hand of all others and guided them on every side. God is actually providing full direction to Hezekiah through the prophets they get direction, provision, salvation, 
and they get guidance as God's people. And this is part of why we shouldn't be scared of having battles, fights, and trials in our life. If we get through them trusting in the Lord, and I think this is why God tests his people sometime. He provides trials to see what kind of metal you have. And if you draw closer to the Lord in your trials, there's a reward for that spiritually, especially spiritually, that comes naturally with that. You get guidance. You start to learn how to listen to the Lord in those tough times. Gifts from the Lord, bringing gifts to the Lord, glory gets given to God in verse 23 before it gets given to Hezekiah. I think that's Hezekiah. I don't know if that's other nations doing that. When they came in with camels full of gifts, first give to the Lord, then you can give to Hezekiah. And that ordering gets put in the right order. Um, he was exalted by other nations the, indirectly. God's people also gain reputation because God allows that to happen. So Judah stops Assyria. The rest of the world notices that and they pay attention to the God of, of Judah. And they recognize the strength of Judah and Hezekiah, the king who believes in them. If God will end his, 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 all of Assyria for this Hezekiah guy, then we should probably make friends with the Hezekiah guy. And it's a logical thing even for non-believers to think that way. If God works in that person's life that wonderfully, I have to at least respect that. And for non-believers to look at your life, I hope they say the same thing. Whatever it is that person believes in, look at the joy and peace that that belief system gives to that person. I can at least respect the integrity of their belief system because they stick to it and they benefit from it. And that is one of our witnesses that we have to the world. Assyria didn't have to go door knocking on other nations' doors. They came to him because of how he lived and the victories that he had. Verse 24, in those days, Hezekiah was sick near death. So he's getting old. And he prayed to the Lord and he spoke with him and, and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor that was shown to him. Again, we don't even get the story in Chronicles. This is a failure point for Hezekiah. It's almost included because we've had so much good for Hezekiah. It's like the chronicler needs to let us know this wasn't the Messiah. Um, but he fails in this regard. We know it from that story, he prayed for 15 more years of life. He gets 15 more years of life. And to prove that to him, God gives him a sign. He stops the sundial. Somehow or another, the planets are in motion or knocked off their course and you can get into the science of that to your heart's content uh, but that's the sign that's being referenced in verse 24 Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor that was shown to him so he gets this gift from God but it's almost like he presumes it and if you remember that story from Kings he's like man I've done everything the way you said I should do it Lord why why are you cutting my reign short I should get 15 more years um his heart was lifted up, verse 25. There's this idea that he believes he almost deserves this favor from God. God gives him the favor, um, but there was wrath, therefore there was wrath looming over him and over Judah and over Jerusalem. So even Hezekiah falls short in parts of his life. And then in verse 26, the chronicler brings us back. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. He actually corrected course. David corrected course. Solomon corrected course. We have a lot of these kings that they make mistakes, but they correct course and they go down in history as godly kings. And thank goodness, because we all kind of fall in that category. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We correct course. God's fine with us. Correct course is the, the key thing. Or in verse 26, humbling himself for the pride in his heart, thinking he deserves things. So it's vague. I think it's vague from the heavenly perspective. God doesn't really remember the specifics because they're not important. He's forgiven them. And I think sometimes humans remember our sins more than God does. When God says, I've thrown them as far as the east is from the west, he means it. They're gone. He's not going to think about them. He's not going to hold them against us. Um, but for some reason, we tend to cling to sin because it almost feels good to be shameful about things we've done. But when we've brought that to God and we've humbled our heart, we've lowered ourselves before God and we've taken the pride of our heart and we've let it go, um, you know, even Hezekiah is not beyond the sin of pride. It's right there for everybody to think somehow more of yourself than others or what God has made you. And even when God's done everything for Hezekiah, there's still pride just looming there waiting it. But this is the second reason why Hezekiah survived Assyria. It's because he humbled himself. And because of this humbling of himself, it's good. The pride of his heart, there's a sinful nature. Even Hezekiah wasn't perfect. He had to submit and repent. 
So then it says in verse 22, uh, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God saw the whole city here as worthy due to the humility of the leader. And the sign that he gets, Second Kings 20, if you want to get into that, because of this repentant heart, because it was humble, um, the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. It's just kind of a nice passage about repentance. Hezekiah um, talks a little bit about the wealth of Hezekiah. We're wrapping up his kingship here. Before the writer gets into the earthly wealth, we've already heard Hezekiah had attacks. He had pride, and he dealt with both Assyria, the attack, and he dealt with the pride of himself. He dealt with the attacks from the world, and he dealt with the pride of life or the flesh. He did both of these. So the writer summarizes then the blessings assuming that we know the rest of Kings and the rest of the story. Verse 27, Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. He made himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stone, for spices, for shields. Like he had a different room for each of these. And for all kinds of desirable items. He stocked up stuff on this earth. Storehouses for the harvest of grain, wine, oil, and stalls for all kinds of livestock, and folds for the flocks. Moreover, he provided cities for himself and possessions of the flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very much property. This same Hezekiah, I like this same Hezekiah, also stopped the water outlet in the upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. So that summary is kind of summarizing everything we just read, puts it all into one place. God had blessed him. It's not because he was perfect. It's because he humbled himself. And he did things God's way. Um, Verse 31. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him that we might know all that was in his heart. The whole point of Hezekiah If you remember the story with the ambassadors, this happens after Assyria. Babylon's on the rise. Assyria's struck down. But then Babylon was an Assyrian city, and there were two princes that went off to rule Assyria after this devastating blow. And Babylon became the greater of the cities and eventually threw off the name Assyria. But they were definitely worshiping a lot of the same gods, a lot of the same tactics, Uh, Babylon recruited a lot of the same generals. We're going to see that soon. Um, And the perspective of Chronicles is, um, if you remember with Hezekiah, the ambassadors from Babylon came and he showed off all of his wealth. Well, that was part of the pride situation. And instead of being awed by Hezekiah, Babylon thought, hmm, we could take this city and this is all our stuff. So he literally showed them the bank and thought that that would have a good result. So he should have been showing them the temple and God's worship, and he should have been pointing his glory to God, and that would have saved some trouble. But the purpose of all of this was that God wanted to test him and see if either success or failure would be things that would draw him away. Here's the thing with Hezekiah. In trial, when he's under attack, he's right tight with God. He and Isaiah are off praying in the corner when things are tough. But when things are good, that's when the pride comes in and where where he struggled. And this is where Hezekiah falls short, is that he failed in success, not in struggle. So having success in our spiritual walk can be as much of a pitfall as having trials in our spiritual walk. Sometimes in the trials, we just pray for seasons of peace to get through the trial. Help me through that, Lord. Um, But there's also temptations in in good times as much as there are in bad times. In fact, some people argue that sin escalates when we have extra time on our hands. So sometimes idle time is exactly where sin breeds. Here's the death of Hezekiah. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness. Like, let's summarize Hezekiah overall. He's a good guy. Indeed, they're written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, son of Amoz, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers. They buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Clearly, he starts strong. He has a long reign. He has a couple failings but he's not the Messiah. Great case study and leadership all around, especially if you're rebuilding Jerusalem after you're leaving Babylon. Like Hezekiah is a great study of how to do that. 
Um, a weak Judah turns into a strong Judah in one lifetime. Manasseh is going to undo all of that work. So in Manasseh, we get maybe the worst king. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. You know, what's odd, I think, is that you go from this great king to a really bad king in one generation. And being 12 years old, that means Manasseh was born during the additional 15 years that Hezekiah pleaded with God to get. So what if Hezekiah would have just gone home when God was calling him home? And, and what would that look like? But the 55-year-long reign of, uh, of Manasseh almost stands in the face of everybody else that we've looked at. All the other kings, the bad ones have had short reigns and the good ones have had big reigns. But in this case, it's quite the opposite. Length of time, then, is not always a blessing. It can be, but we can't draw a principle because of Manasseh. It's not a rule. It's a general trend that good kings have long terms, bad kings have short terms. Um, but it's not a rule, because here's Manasseh with a very, very long term, and the people fall into sin. Chronicles adds this repentance of Manasseh, which is not in the book of Kings, um, explaining the time he needed it. So we'll spend a little more time on Manasseh than we did in the book of Kings. Book of Kings, he's just an evil king. Uh, done. Um, in Chronicles, we get a little bit different perspective. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He starts out evil. You know, 12-year-old getting all the power of the nation. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Goes right back to idol worship. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah's father had broken down. He raised up the altars for the Baals and made wooden images. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He allows evil. Verse 4. Um, now he does evil. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. So it's not good enough to just bring evil into the country. The evil's got to come into the church. Right? You can't just go off and do your stuff out in the wilderness on your own. You have to have the church accept it. So he brings it into the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall be my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, literally setting up idol worship in the temple courtyards. Now it gets worse. And he also caused the sons, his sons, to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom, just like grandpa. And he practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft and sorcery and consulted mediums and spiritists. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now, this list of different kinds of interactions with the spiritual world or interactions where the human is empowered beyond normal human life, uh, witchcraft, sorcery, mediums. I think we went through all of those when we did the law. So I'm not going to go through each one of those again. But they're all different kinds of sin in that you're escalating humanity or our relationship to demons over a simple basic worship of the Lord. So he's not only being permissive of this worldly stuff, he actually participates in all of it. And under the law, Manasseh should have been killed for his participation in these things. The death penalty is what the law has for these things. With the passing through the fire, again, I'll point this out, passing through the fire, putting your kids through the fire means he got rid of his babies by killing them. And it, it is amazing that when you see evil rise in a nation, one of the targets of that evil is babies. The enemy goes after babies because they have the potential to serve God with the rest of their life. They're still pure. They haven't engaged in sinful behavior. They're pre-age of accountability. So sacrificing innocence on the altar of Moloch is like taking a baby and sacrificing the altar of self. Whatever is more convenient for you, kill the baby. If it makes better sense for your life, kill the baby. And that kind of thinking is not new. It's not progressive. It's been around since the beginning of time. And we just see it over and over and over again. Every time idol worship goes up, the value of human life goes down, no matter where you go. So allowing it, inviting it, participating it. There is a progression that's the opposite of Psalm 1-1. A man... A blessed man is one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Progressively worse. And that's Manasseh. First he's walking with them, then he's standing with them, and then he's taking the leadership role and taking it on himself. If Israel did under all of this under Ahab and it got wiped out, what should we expect of Judah? This is the chronicler's, I think, point in sharing all this. Manasseh does everything that the northern kingdom was doing, 
The northern kingdom got wiped out. That's the judgment of God. What's going to happen to Judah? Judah's going to get wiped out. And that doesn't mean that the seed of the throne of David needs to get eradicated. It does mean that Israel can lose its nationhood and God can still move forward with his plan. They assumed that Israel had to stand forever. Then they assumed that Judah had to stand forever. Now they're assuming that Jerusalem, the city, would stand forever. And the point of this is God doesn't need cities or nations to maintain his will on the earth. And even though there's a special covenant with Israel, and we've talked about that a lot, there is still an idea where they were exiled to Babylon and did not have their own nation for some time. The Romans took away their nation status. They never got it back. And diaspora happened when they were scattered. They really only got a nation back in 1948. They spent nearly 2,000 years without a country. So to think that the Jewish people need to have a nation state to get through the history of the world, it just hasn't held up to be true. Um, the thing is that's exciting for believers is that they, in the end times prophecies, they actually do have their own country. And so when that got reinstated in 1948, it made everybody go back to prophecy and start reading it again. Okay, well, we thought maybe this it wasn't like we thought, but now they actually have a country. But that's not to say they won't lose their country next year and the Hamas will take over and it'll be another 2,000 years before they get their nationhood back. I don't think that's the case, but I do think that like we shouldn't presume that God can't use time to work with his people over and over and over again. He's done it in the past. He has the ability to do it in the future. That said, Manasseh, so let's get into all the bad things. He sets a carved image, the idol which he made in the house of God. This is a very diplomatic, uh, PG way to say what he did here. In the book of 2 Kings 21.7, he, he puts the Asheroth pole in the house of God, not in the courtyard, in the house itself. Asheroth poles were largely the center of a prostitution ring. They the ones we've found archaeologically have clear um, uh, pornographic images is what they make these of. So they set one right in, in defiance of God, which is amazing. They couldn't just build an Asheroth temple somewhere. They have to use God's temple to bring their stuff into God's temple. It's not good enough unless they defile it. Um, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I've appointed for your fathers. Only if, again, this is the thing, the promise is they would have Israel forever. But the chronicler reminds them, because they just got done being in Babylon, only if they're careful to do all that I've commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. If you don't follow the law that God's prescribed, God's not obligated to keep his promises because you've broken covenant. And so the idea that God says anyone that calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved, there's a condition there. You have to call on the name of Jesus Christ. You have to humble yourself, repent, and follow Jesus. So if you're not doing that, that promise falls apart very quickly. And the chronicler is reminding, and I think this is theologically they needed to hear this when they were coming out of Babylon. Yes, they lost their nation for 70 years. If they don't keep God's law, they could lose it for even more years, like 490 years. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. This seems to be almost inexplicable. They saw holiness under Manasseh. How could they possibly turn away? And the answer here is, it's been, I mean, Hezekiah ruled for 55 years. So at some point, you, you take things for granted. If there's no leader and there's no free feasts going on, then suddenly the worship of God gets less exciting. Just think of the nation of America, the difference between, say, the 1920s America, you know, the golden age, materialism, capitalism, hedonism, all that sort of thing, to the 1930s, where there was a revival that went on across this country. In poverty, in a Great Depression, we actually turned back to the Lord God Almighty. And suddenly the materialism wasn't important, and God, God's people rose back up. That's only a 10-year difference between the two decades. With Hezekiah, we've seen more than that, and then you get this swift change in the country, which when you're reading through the scriptures seems like these really swift turns, but I would encourage you to think of this in terms of decades. These weren't swift turns, they're normal turns. 
And you can have nations go from godliness to ungodliness fairly quickly. The, the, the time passing has allowed prosperity to come to the country, and in that prosperity they fall into sin. So Hezekiah overall is good with some missteps. Manasseh is overall evil, but he has some repenting. So we get the flip side in Chronicles. Isaiah and Micah both die during Manasseh's reign, but Nahum and Jeremiah are now publicly prophesying. The difference between Isaiah and Michael is repent or turn or God will lift his hand away from you. But when you get to Nahum and Jeremiah, the message is very clear. God's made a decision. You're going to lose your country. So repent and turn back to the Lord to get you through this trial that's coming. And that all happens during Manasseh's reign. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Not just Manasseh. Same with Hezekiah. It wasn't just Hezekiah repenting and turning to the Lord. All the people did with him. It was a national revival. But the same thing's going, it's almost like a flip side of the coin that we're getting. The people would not listen. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. It's not just Manasseh, it's the people who are on board with this too. Therefore the Lord brought up upon them the captains of the armies of the king of Assyria. You're saying, what? I thought Assyria is wiped out. Just keep reading. Who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze feathers, and carried him off to Babylon. So they're the Assyrian captains of the army. They're using the same torture techniques of, of hooks and fetters and that sort of thing, but they're actually, the new capital is now moved to Babylon. Assyria controls Babylon until about 612 BC. So this is a period of time where there's this, they don't quite know what to call things, and we see that reflected in the word too. The power base has shifted because the, the slaves are going off to Babylon now. And so we see this change happen just in that sentence. Verse 12, now when he was in affliction, Manasseh, he implored the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the Lord God of his fathers. We get this little insight of when he was carried off to Babylon. And he prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Isn't that? God even cares about this guy. So having done probably not as vile of things that Manasseh did, we get to see the heart of God isn't to necessarily make affliction, but he allows the affliction on Manasseh because God allows it and it actually works. He repents. And these hardships have that result. So he trusts in idols. <clears throat> he gets enslaved by the idol worshipers. And in verse three thirteen, we just get this example of grace in the Old Testament. God doesn't have to save Manasseh. He really doesn't have to save this guy. Um, but he's faithful to David's line, and he said, whenever you turn your hearts back to me and repent, um, I'll be there for you. And so he is, and we see God keeping his promise in verse 13. Uh, and again, we keep seeing this pattern. He, at, he implores of the Lord. He actually asks him. He humbles himself before the Lord, and he prays to him, and, receive, and the Lord receives the entreaty. The Lord hears it. If my people only humble themselves and pray, he will hear them no matter where they're at and where, they're, where, where in the world they're, they're, they're located. So verse 14, after this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon. He comes back from Babylon and he starts doing the exact same things that Hezekiah did. He starts learning and doing the things that he saw his dad do for 12 years. So he returns and he turns it around. In the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, it enclosed the offal. He raised it to a very great height. And then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He starts to defend the country. He's being a good shepherd. He took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, which means he, he destroyed it. And he did with that Asheroth pole. He sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. There's the falling short. He's commanding people to do this. You can't force people to worship God. And Hezekiah didn't really, he led by example. Uh, Manasseh isn't as mature in his leadership. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. 
Some of the high places were actually to Yahweh, but they weren't the prescribed way to do worship. They were the convenient way to do worship. This is the same thing that, that we've seen other kings did all the right things, but they didn't get rid of these alternative spots. So Manasseh cleans things up a bit. This is good, but he still leaves it worse than he found it. Much like the prodigal son of Luke 15, he wastes his inheritance, but he humbles and he returns and God's welcome to have him back. And then he gets to work. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God, the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed they're written, written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also, his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all of his sin and trespasses and the sites where he built the high places and set up woman images and carved images before he was humbled, indeed they're written amongst the sayings of Hosei. Uh, we don't have that book in the Bible. Probably because who needs to read all that? So Manasseh rested with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon raised in his place. Interesting in verse 20, he's not buried with his fathers. So it's, it's an odd thing to read in Chronicles that he did repent and he did some good things. Um, but we can see that like there's still a consequence for all this stuff that he did. Um, a footnote on a non-devoted Israel being a bridge to kind of Ammon, the line of David just keeps rolling along. But Manasseh is a, a tripping point. Then Ammon, who's 22 years old when he became king, he reigned two years in Jerusalem. That's not long. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done, for Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. He did not humble himself before the Lord, as his father Manasseh had humbled himself, but Ammon trespassed more and more. Worse than Manasseh, all the worst things, short little revival, um, then Ammon's there. Two years later, his servants conspire against him, his own household kills him in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. He's 22, so he has a son. 24 when he dies. It's interesting, as Judah starts to imitate the world, they start to sound like the world. Isn't this starting to sound more and more like Israel? Right? Two-year reigns, conspiring and killing. Remember in Kings, this is part of what the downfall of Israel looked like. When a, a nation starts to fall, you see a division in the country of factions. And instead of having a united national vision, those factions start to actually hurt each other and do harm to each other. And so we start to see that in Israel as they kind of disintegrate and weaken, and we're seeing that now in Judah. Uh, the people of the land executed is different than 24. So in verse 24, they killed him in his own house. Uh, to kill is against the Ten Commandments. It is not civic. It is uh, ending someone's life. But the word executed there is to um, do something uh, to smite them under the law. Because they killed the, the seed of David, uh, there's a consequence for that. So remember when David was with Saul and he, he wouldn't kill Saul? He just cut off a corner of his robe. And part of David's intensity there was, I will not lay a hand against God's anointed. So what happened with these servants in verse 24 is they laid a hand on God's anointed. Even though Ammon was a bad king and doing idol worship, he was still David's heir. And because of that, they are killed for it. And the people, the land, see this happening and, and they... Basically, because they conspired against King Ammon, they execute them for that reason. The people of the land then did it. Um, another thing you see in disintegrating nations is more and more decisions get made outside the throne room. And if, if God's not on the throne, decisions start getting made by humans, and those decisions start flopping back and forth based on who's in power. And so justice starts to go out the window too. There seems to be a desire from holiness for these people they put Josiah on the throne knowing that he's still David's line. They've had 50 years of evil policies between Manasseh and Ammon. Um, there's a glimmer of hope here under a repentant Manasseh, but then Ammon takes over. They kill him. He's not honored. He's not buried with his fathers, and he won't really live long enough to have an impact on Josiah. Josiah's still pretty young when he takes over. He's only eight years old, so he hasn't seen and learned from Ammon, doesn't have time to. Um, and God starts sending more and more prophets. I just want to emphasize that again. At this point, when Josiah takes over, 
the southern kingdom has more prophets active that are in the Bible than we've seen at any other place in the Bible. So at the end of verse 25, Nahum, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and even Ezekiel and Daniel are now on the scene. And Ezekiel and Daniel will be prophets to the Babylonian Jews, but they're alive and they're part of this conversation right now. So God's actually got more messengers than he has kings at this point, which says something about the kings, that he's going to try to talk to them. And these different prophets, some of them are going to the king, some of them are going directly to the people. And God is appealing over and over and over again and warning them that the behaviors that are happening are going to destroy the nation of Judah. And the consequence of this is going to be dire. So as we get into those five prophets, just remember this is historically where we're at when that happens. You've got evil kings, you've got Asheroth poles in the temple, you've got Baal worship, Moloch worship down in the valley, you've got all this stuff going on, and then the prophets start to speak up. Um, and some of those prophets are going to stay in Judah even after the elites or the upper class of Judah gets hauled off to Babylon. So the people of Israel, the people of Judah, there's some of them that remain in the land for this 70 years, mostly the working class. So that again, going back to that promise of the people of God not having their feet leave this countryside, if you think not in terms of nation state, but just at least having one Jew in Palestine, that has been constant since this time in history. There have always been Jews living in this area. Even under the Roman diaspora, there were still Jews that stayed put. And even under the Babylon, um, as they take them captive into Babylon, there's still going to be Jews that stay put in this part of the world. So that is Chronicles 32 and 33. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We again thank you for the examples of Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amen. Um, Lord, I'm thankful we can learn from good examples and we can learn from bad examples. So, Lord, help us to live our life in a way that when the books are written, um, Lord, that at the end of the day, we're buried with our fathers and mothers and we're we're carried away to heaven and we go to the, the bosom of Abraham, um, Lord, because we've lived the way you've prescribed. And Lord, help us to humble ourselves when pride sneaks its way in. Uh, help us, Lord, to get idols out of our life and to keep the courtyard clear. Um, to offer up prayers and thanksgiving um, as appropriate in our trials, but also in our successes and in prosperity. Lord, help us to turn to you all the same because you become our God, not the things of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.